Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Lazard Asset Management. As such, the sponsor can make suggestions for topics for discussion, but final control over the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Steve Reford, who is a portfolio manager in the global thematic equity team of Lazard Asset Management. Steve, welcome to the show. Walter, it's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks very much for making time for us. No problem. Now, we always like to uh, know a little bit about the background of our guest. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in investing? Yeah, sure. Well, um, it was quite a long time ago now. I was I was 14. I remember it very, very clearly. And my uh, father uh, received a few shares in British Petroleum, BP in the UK. So, so this would have been 87. And uh, he wasn't sure what to do with it. So he went out and bought a book, a Financial Times Guide to the Stock Market, and, and gave it to me to have a look at it. And this was um, where I learned the mechanics of the stock market in terms of trading and investing. But also what I learned was there was this really fascinating human component to markets. And uh, I'm very interested in psychology. Markets are just crowd psychology. So after that, I tried a couple of things. I did a degree in computing, and I trained as a chartered accountant. And all the time... I'm investing personally behind the scenes. And in the end, I just said to myself, look, Steve, the market is what you love. Uh, you should make that your job. And, and then, so here we are, whatever it is now, 34 years after the, that first book of the FT. And I must say, actually, it's, uh, it's still the case. that I find the markets completely compelling. They're, they're, just, they're just endlessly fascinating. So it all started with a book. That's, that's very interesting. You don't hear that too often. Well, it's um, yeah. I guess um, it it takes uh, all sorts of personalities, and but the market has this way. I think that of it sort of sucks you in, and and um, and it won't let you go if you're fascinated by the sorts of topics I just mentioned. So it's been wonderful. And you also mentioned that you did a degree in computer science, and I was sort of thinking, is that still applicable to what you do in in terms of we've seen all this very rapid tec- uh, technological development. You see machine learning and AI coming into the asset management space. Are you still using it? What a very good question. I, I um, well, I'll break that down. I don't think that one's training uh, in formal education uh, is necessarily that important for markets. Certainly, um, you know, some of the most interesting people in markets have quite unusual backgrounds. Um, I think intellectual curiosity is sort of the, the key ingredient. That said, I do think that some sort of foundational education in technology or at least some knowledge about technology is is very very helpful today as a starting point if only because 
so many of the structural changes that are happening in the world today have a technological component to them, whether it's in, if you think about communications or media or energy or healthcare or whatever it may be, you know, the way that technology is being applied has massive implications for, for every industry, every company, every, everybody. So, yeah, I think it's not the only, I mean, technology is not the only driver of structural change, but it's a, certainly a core component. Yeah. So does that help you sort of distinguish between what is possible and what is just sort of, you know, some optimistic view of the future? Yeah, I think it's, um, I guess so. I mean, the thing about it is that the principles remain constant. So I, I think back and actually my thesis was on artificial intelligence. So whatever that was, 25 plus years ago now. And, you know, what's happened in AI is quite incredible. Some of the things that we were just sort of scratching the surface on back then have become utterly mainstream, whether it's talking to your, you know, cell phone or smartphone, right the way through to these sort of fascinating developments in AI elsewhere. Um, but the same principles underneath there still apply. So that's that. I think that the principles are useful, but the applications change. Yeah, there's been a lot of change. So in your way of looking at uh, investing in, in the market, you take a thematic approach. Now, I've seen quite a few different iterations over the year over what people think of as thematic investing. Can you tell me a little bit about your approach to thematic investing? Yeah, I, I just wrote actually a couple of white papers answering that exact very good question because thematic investing means different things to different people. Uh, I think, though, that most investors ultimately want the same three things, right? They want to generate returns. They want to mitigate risk. Increasingly, they want to integrate sustainability, so non-financial externalities, into what they're doing as well. And, you know, thematic investing is really about um, how you can do that, a choice of how you build a portfolio to achieve those objectives. And um, so when we build a portfolio, the important first step is to say, how are we going to anchor our portfolio to something? You know, and we, there's lots of different alternatives out there. It could be a benchmark. Well, there are, that can be good. It can be measured, but it can also be bad because benchmarks tend to be somewhat backward looking. Uh, it could be to a style. So you could sort of tie yourself to growth investing or value investing. Uh, I personally think that's a somewhat arbitrary distinction between the two. Why is that? Why do you think it's arbitrary? Well, I mean, doesn't every investor want to understand both of those sort of attributes, growth and value? I, I think that it's sort of, um, the other thing is, is that for a long-term investor, uh, you know, both of those are important attributes. We need to be thinking very much around long-term growth, of course. We don't want to overpay um, in terms of near-term optics, but I think that there is a middle ground, a middle, sort of a third way, if you will, which is to say, well, let's just get rid of the labels and tie ourselves to the biggest structural changes that are going to happen in the course of, say, the next decade. And that is the way that you make big money in the stock market, mitigate risks, is by anchoring your portfolio to those big structural changes, identify the investment opportunities, what we call themes that sit within that. You pick the relevant stocks uh, that will benefit. And then this is the hardest part, is then you have to be patient and let the themes play out. So I think of, you know, when I, you do original question around thematic investing, I think it's just a really sensible approach to long-term investing by capturing these big structural changes and turning them into return objectives, risk objectives, and sustainability objectives. And it really is nothing more than that. 
From what I sort of read about how you look at thematic investing as well, that there is a big distinction between what you see as a structural theme and just a good story. Now, you know, I'm a journalist. I love good stories. I think lots of people love good stories. What's wrong with a good story? Uh, I love it. That's a great point. I love a good story. We all do. Um, and indeed, as as you will know um, from your from your education, uh, stories have been a way of passing on important knowledge for millennia uh, between people. So there's more than just entertainment. It is absolutely a way to pass on knowledge. The problem is not so much stories per se. It's the agency problems in financial markets that we're all aware of. Obviously, fund managers want to raise assets. And one way to do that is to tell a really good story about something that's likely to happen. It's exciting. It's a big deal. But is that story really a genuine investment opportunity? Well, not necessarily. And in fact, I'll give you an example, but I've seen many of them over the years. Back in 2006, 2007, the market was going completely bananas over solar, solar energy yeah. as a concept. Now, if we fast forward where we are today, solar is very, very powerful and pervasive, and there have been huge projects. So what would have happened to that solar theme back in 2006, 2007? Well, actually, the returns would have been very, very poor from that theme, because in the end, the Chinese came in and a lot of capital came in and destroyed returns in that sector. So, you know, this is what we call a narrative fallacy, something that's likely to happen, but actually doesn't necessarily translate into good returns for investors. I think I think that to your point on stories, the um, the message that I would sort of say is that genuine themes are rare and they belong yeah. in your portfolio and stories probably belong in the pub. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Because I think with some of the stocks that are massively up a bit or they look a bit expensive. There seems to be some stories behind there that may well or may not play out. So that's sort of an example of perhaps a story that is not necessarily a theme, an investable theme. Yeah, well, I mean, at, at any one time, uh, that, that crowd psychology that we were talking about earlier on kicks in and people become very, very um, sort of narrow and, and markets become crowded in terms of their thinking. That is, that is a dangerous sign for particular pockets of the market. So it's something, it's definitely market concentrations like that are something that we pay great attention to and we, we try to avoid or at least mitigate our risks. Uh, the good news is, is that if you're a global investor and you're a long-term investor, there's, there's always a long-term opportunity out there somewhere. So let's get into some of these themes. Um, what do you think are um, three or four of the big structural changes that are happening right now? Right. So that there are lots of structural changes happening and we group them into four, actually four categories. And very broadly, we um, before I sort of tell you what those are, it's important to know where we got them from. So we, we what we do is that we have over 4000 company management interactions every year. And really, those interactions boil down to talking to company managements about one thing, which is what will be the biggest structural change in your industry, in the world, in in your careers and we aggregate those things together and the companies themselves therefore tell us what the world is going to look like over the next decade because they are the ones investing billions if not trillions of dollars of capital to make the world what it will look like in, in 2013 and beyond so what do they say today well the big four changes going on the first of those is technology as we talked about earlier on i think that um in the consumer space globally Technology has already, you know, changed a lot of things for a lot of people. But in longer cycles, slower moving industries like industrials, like healthcare, like auto, 
what you're just starting to see is that some of those lessons we've learned from the consumer space are, are mapping across there. And then, but technology is not going to be the only thing in town. Uh, geopolitics, we can absolutely expect some big geopolitical changes over the next uh, decade. Um, everybody points towards the relationship between the US and China. Yeah, uh, We would certainly emphasize that. But also India is going to be bigger than China um, in sort of three years time in terms of population. In the rise of India is another further sort of complication or issues in that equation. I think the third point is sustainability. Sustainability considerations generally um, are you know, widely discussed and how we can, um, as investors, be part of the solution rather than part of the problem is exactly the same question that companies are asking themselves. And then finally, the rather sort of dry but very, very important topic of monetary policy. And I actually saw it on one of your prior podcasts, you had somebody who termed the phrase MMT and modern monetary theory. And that's absolutely right. We are seeing a sea change in the relationship between central banks and governments. And there is every reason to think that there are risks, I think, to the upside in terms of the probability of a more structurally inflationary environment. And that would be the first time we've seen that in over 40 years. So there are lots of these big structural changes. And um, it's not just in isolation, it's about how they interact and relate to each other as well that makes such a fascinating recipe for, for investors. Yeah, for sure. Now, when you look at some of these big structural changes, and let's take geopolitics as an example, the, the US-China trade wars, often you can you, you have to make a decision and the decision may come through, it may play out or it might not. But then the consequences of that are sometimes also different than you necessarily expect. And, and, and I might give an example here. Um, a while ago, we spoke to a local asset owner here, a super fund, and they they were taking a tilt on the U.S. election at a time with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And they sort of predicted that Hillary Clinton would win and it was great for markets. And so that's the trade they put on. Well, they got the decision wrong, but it was still good for markets. So they still made money based on the wrong decision. So my question is, how do you translate these big structural things into investment ideas? Yeah, yeah. So it's um, what a super example, by the way. One of the, I'm just going to have to deal with that initial question, which is many times investors are confronted with binary outcomes. And, um, you know, we need to be humble on both components that you've highlighted there. So the first one is, you know, actually making the call on a binary outcome is very, very difficult. And I, I, um, unless you have an information advantage, then you are just you know, flipping a coin. So in an investment sense, one looks to try to sort of mitigate that risk as, well, as much as one can. The other thing is, is as you correctly highlight, even if you correctly call the outcome, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know how the market is going to react. And, and so a bit of humility around these areas is, is incredibly important. The way that we try to look around it is that we want to try to have as many tailwinds as possible behind each of our investment themes. So when we're taking those four big structural changes and we're sort of mapping them into investment themes, the more structural changes as tailwinds we have backing that theme, the better. And that means that we don't necessarily need to be perfectly right. What we can do instead is we can just say that, you know, most of it's right and we're right side of the big changes. Yeah, of course, we can't ignore sort of the whole pandemic and everything that happened last year. Are there any learnings from that? Are there any sort of investment themes that have come out of that turbulent period of March, April last year where you saw markets fall very quickly and then quite quickly uh, get back to to sort of halfway mm. again. 
Well, I mean, I think it's almost a cliche now to say that the pandemic has accelerated these trends that were already in place beforehand, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. Uh, and we, we hear again and again from company management teams that the, you know, the pandemic accelerated various trends that, that may have taken some, a while beforehand to, to take off. I think there are a number of sort of examples that touch our themes. And I, I mean, in order to explain that, I'll have to touch on a couple of our themes. But for example, in the world of industrials, we already felt that the emergence of industrial operating systems, the equivalent of an iOS or an Android, but for a factory floor or for a, a you know, a, a, a multi-dwelling building, these industrial operating systems are gradually being rolled out across various, um, you know, various regions. But then the pandemic comes along, and of course, it means that a lot of those buildings are then empty, and um, and they may need to be repurposed for other things. So that accelerates the adoption of a building manager saying, we're going to have to put in an operating system. And then in addition to that, you have, you know, a new um, administration here in the United States. So there's a political imperative as well. And they are putting government money behind, you know, how do we get an infrastructure plan together? That government money is likely to be another accelerant of building operating systems. And then finally, you have sort of sustainability as a whole. And sustainability um, is all about in the in the world of say buildings. What are your emissions? How do you get your emissions down? How do we sort of improve that picture? And all of that requires the same thing as well. So, actually, you know, the, the pandemic, along with things like government policy, along with the rising sustainability issues, are all tailwinds behind this individual theme. And I think it's another good example of of just how the pandemic has really sort of accelerated. Those changes were going to happen anyway, but now they're going to happen you know, even faster. Yeah, well, I think if some, something can become a cliche in 40 months, then you know you're living in times that are rapidly changing. Um, you mentioned earlier that one of the hardest thing as a thematic investor is to actually be patient and sit back to a degree to let these themes play out. Now, that sort of long-term approach also means that you, you can have quite long periods where you, your tracking error gets quite large um, as these themes are developing and the market starting to catch up on it. And in Australia at the moment, we have a, we're facing a set of regulations that arguably push people to reduce their tracking error and be very mindful of it. How do you manage that, that, that problem of, of tracking error? Well, uh, I mean, my immediate reaction to that is I don't necessarily think that tracking error is a problem, um, of course. So I mean, and, and ours can certainly vary over time. You're absolutely right. Sometimes our portfolios might look a bit like the benchmark and other times they may differ, you know, very significantly. And, and that's okay. I mean, it's not something that we we manage. I think from, from an investment perspective, we don't manage it at all. From a client perspective, the way that you have to be able to manage these short-term periods where, you know, particularly when performance isn't particularly, isn't particularly strong in the short term is all about just having an open line of communication with your client we have some very, very long-term client relationships. I've learned from from them probably as much or or, or more than they learned from us as a team. I mean, the, the other thing embedded in your question, though, is about a the long-term component, the long-term versus the short-term, and how does one handle short-term volatility? And long-term investors have a big set of advantages over short-term investors if they, you know, have the right agency relationships. Firstly, you, know, you need to be long-term in order to capture the big premium that's available to you from these structural changes. You, you cannot trade in and out of these. 
you have to be a long-term investor um, you know, and, and live through it. The other thing, of course, is that you can take advantage of short-term volatility. And I'll give you, um, again, an example from, from our portfolios. But we put in place an interesting theme called bits of chips. Um, it's about certain parts of the semiconductor and component supply chain. And these are the common components that go into everything from 5G to driverless vehicles to electric vehicles and AI and so on. And they, they all share some common sort of components that are in oligopolistic industries. It's just a really, in other words, we, we're buying the, the picks and shovels that go into all of these tailwinds. But the thing about semiconductor stocks is they can be a little bit volatile. Last year, the pandemic hits and everyone immediately sells these stocks because they're worried that there's going to be no demand for anything at all. Well, as a thematic investor, there is nothing more wonderful than when <laughs> you see a short-term cyclical move against your long-term view. So that was a wonderful opportunity for us to go in there. We'd done all the work already, buy the names that we were able to that we wanted to buy on a discount. Now, of course, everyone's now worried whether semiconductor stocks have gone too far or whatever. So it does move, it moves very quickly. But the, the point being is that a long-term investor can take advantage of short-term volatility. If that means having you know a large tracking error for short periods of time, so be it. Yeah. How do you then look at um, when these themes are playing out? When do you think, okay, this is the level that we are happy with and we're now going to take some profit? So I was listening in preparation for this podcast to a conversation you had with your colleague Ron Temple. And he, I think he made a remark at one stage that there are very few books written about stocks that have been held in families forever and just never sold. Probably because there's not much of a story in there. It would be two pages, but it might be a very good investment approach. When is the right time to sell? Well, um, it, it, I'm glad that you listened to that podcast with Ron, actually, because he he explores some of these um, these topics in, in detail too. But you, um, sell discipline is one of the absolute hardest things to get right in investing. Uh, and I'll I'll describe our approach at theme level, although actually it's very similar at stock level. There are three reasons why we retire a theme or allow it to evolve into, into something a little different. The first is, as Keynes would say, you know, you know, you, when the facts change, do you change your mind? Sometimes the facts change and they can change and, and provide greater support for your theme or they could, they could actually show that your theme is you know, becoming less valid over time. So if the facts change, if we've got new information, whether we're right or wrong, we may wish to take a theme in a different direction or indeed retire it. And that's okay. The second is valuation, because over the long run, uh, it's perfectly possible that the market will catch up with your views. You have to have a valuation discipline. And when valuation catches up with you, it's, you know, there's no point in being married to a theme or indeed an investment idea. It's just time to move on. And then the third one is simply, if you have a better idea, I mean, it's important to have lots and lots of, of theme generation coming through. We have a finite shelf for themes in a, in a thematic portfolio. If a good theme is replaced by a better theme, well, that's ultimately a good thing. That's very, very helpful. So so I think overall, I mean, your, your point around cell discipline is a very, very good one. Uh, we, um, you know, our average holding period is about five years, uh, even though we're taking sort of a 10-year view. And the reason for that is because generally it's because better ideas, you know, come along uh, and they force out the weaker ideas. The, 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 ultimate, the ultimate learning point on cell discipline is if you have, if you have new ideas, you generally won't get married to a position. 
Now, you just mentioned that it's important not to get married to a theme. Um, and I would like to explore that a bit further because it is an often occurring problem where people get so invested with a particular company that they find it hard to say, okay, now we need to step away from this. I can imagine if you have these big structural themes where you put a lot of research into a lot of time in, you project it out for 10 years, it's very hard to say, oh, actually, no, nah, this one doesn't work. Let's move on. How do, how do you cope with it? So what you're highlighting is absolutely true. There's a sunk cost when you look at a stock. You, you put your time into it, and particularly for a long-term holding, if you've owned it over a number of years, you may know this company very, very well. But there is a big difference between knowing a company well and it being a good investment. And the way around that, and I think it's sort of codified into a thematic approach and to make to try and remove the emotion from the equation is to have competition for capital. So what I mean by that is if we, we on the global thematic equity team, we only run multi-theme portfolios. And that's partly because it means that uh, whenever a theme reaches the end of its life, that's not an existential threat for us. We just, you know, take it out, we'll redeploy the capital across the other themes, or we might, you know, create a new theme. But that helps, you know. And then the other thing is, is that at a stock level and a company level, all of that knowledge that you've learned about a company is still very, very relevant. It can be relevant to other stocks within the theme. It can be relevant to where the direction of the theme is going. So I just look at it as an ongoing process and, um, you know, and, and just to say that competition for capital is a is a way of mentally dealing with the idea that one way or another everything has you know everything's temporary you know that everything has a shelf life in investing yeah and i think you also mentioned that you have to have enough themes in your portfolio to have a, a sort of a diversified view there as well is, is there a danger that looking at today and the impact of technology i do often interviews where people say Every company is now a technology company because it's so pervasive in everything we do. Is there a danger that there's one thing that's just starting to dominate a portfolio? I think that that's a very, very good point, actually. the Yes, every company is a technology portfolio because in its broadest sense, most, most advances are technology one way or the other. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a very good point. I think that markets... Uh, and there are there are some reasons for this around around benchmarks and passive investing. Markets do tend to cluster around what has worked rather than what's going to work, and that means that when you have these concentrations in markets, where, for example, now over the last ten years, there's been um, certainly until you know last year with the pandemic, you needed to own large cap U.S. technology stocks, and so that became sort of everybody's default position. But we have to remember that there are many, many structural changes, technological and otherwise, that could happen in the next 10 years, and that the entire market could be caught offside by those. You know, so I guess one would call them tail risks, or I would, I would also call them tail opportunities. So that, you know, being positioned for those is, is what's absolutely important. There's, there's, um, and as I say, market concentrations are a great risk. I think today that technology is still going to be very, very important in the next 10 years. I mean, it would be crazy to say anything else, but I think that it's going to have to compete as an idea with geopolitical change, sustainability considerations, and potential changes around monetary policy and, and how we think about what money is. And I think that that is going to be the real difference. I don't think that technology as a concept 
is going to have the uh, stage to itself in the 2020s. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, you just mentioned tail risk there and tail opportunities. I've, I, I read somewhere where you talk about um, these transformational shifts as being non-linear. They often take people by surprise. How do you prepare for an opportunity like that that, that might come as a, uh, a bolt out of the blue? Well, super question. The Well, so you know, I was a technology analyst in the 90s before I moved to New York, whatever it is, 20 years ago. And for the last 20 years, all I've done is thematic investing. And one of the things you do, you, you discover when you look at all of the different themes that, that have worked over the time, and of course, the themes that don't, is that most structural change is nonlinear in nature. Most of it isn't a straightforward growth line. It's a, it's a nonlinear change. So yes, technology is part of that, the famous S-curve, where, you know, you get a few early adopters and things tend to, you know, people people get tired and impatient and they give up. Then the mainstream sets in, they come in and buy it and suddenly growth accelerates. And then by the time that everyone's just, you know, got on board of this curve, then it, growth starts to tail off again. So that's okay. We've got lots of those sort of examples in our portfolio around, you know, the industrials and semiconductors and so on. But also in things like consumer behavior, S-curves happen in consumer behavior with popular psychology, networks and things like healthcare and financial services. All of these are subject to that S-curve. I think the one of the most overlooked aspects of long-term investing, though, is that S-curves don't just apply uh, to technology. You know, plenty of other changes are non-linear as well. So think about politics, geopolitics, you know, an outbreak of war. The fall of the Berlin Wall was a non-linear event. Could there be a non-linear political event in the 2020s, whether it's US, China, India, somewhere else? The answer is, why not? Absolutely, there could be a non-linear um, you know, event, and that could represent an opportunity or, or a risk. Sustainability problems are by definition non-linear. So you know, if we were having this conversation 18 months ago, we might have been talking about climate change and whether there was going to be, yeah. you know, some, some particular risk there. Today, the obvious sustainability nonlinear event is happening. It's the pandemic. It's a nonlinear event that came out of nowhere. It's a tail risk. The final one might be, and I say, I come back to monetary policy again. We, we're in the world, we're in the uncharted world. We're in, we're in a new world for monetary policy. It is hubris, pure hubris to assume that we will be able to control the outcomes of what that world will look like. Uh, the consequences of monetary policy change must be non-linear. So very long-winded answer, but it's such a super question. Structural change is always non-linear. One must expect the unexpected. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. So I think with looking at all these uh, long-term themes and, and big structural changes, um, you must do a lot of reading. Is there um, any sort of particular books that you're reading at the moment that you can recommend? Yeah, I um, yeah, thanks for that. I, I read a lot actually, and um, in fact, there's my, my big sort of um, market history bookshelf right next to me. Um, it's not going to be a very satisfying answer, but I tend to reread old books. I read them over and over again, and the book that's on my bookshelf that I've read the most, uh, at least the one that's related to to markets, is the classic. Um, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator by Edwin Lefebvre, um, the, the biography of the famous speculator and trader and investor of the last century, um, Jesse Livermore. And what I love about that book is that in it, um, 
Jesse Livermore essentially talks about how he loses money and he talks about how he learns to go from, in an early part of his career, trading the short term to ultimately by the end of his career, waiting for what he called the big swing. Uh, and that big swing was a major cyclical move or a major structural move. And, and what I enjoy about that book is that uh, every time I read it, I learn something new. But I do feel that it emphasizes the need to focus on the big swing, in our case, of structural changes, of these big structural changes. And um, patience and long, you know, what, what Livermore says is that you need to face forward, not backward. You know, we need to think about what's coming in 10 years' time, not what's worked in the last 10 years. And we need to be patient. And then we just need to sit tight and let these structural changes happen, let our investment portfolios benefit. So there's a lot in that book that's um, it's a wonderful combination of history and psychology and lots of things for people to learn from, even though the book itself was written, uh, I think, around a century ago. Yeah. So it's a good lesson in this fast-paced world to sometimes uh, sit back and uh, assess whether you actually need to change anything or let just things play out as they go. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one way to reduce the volatility of a portfolio is to just turn your screen off for a while and um, <laughs> and just let it sort of play out. But I think it's absolutely right that in this, it, we're all bombarded with a lot of information. And um, increasingly in, in, in modern psychology, as much as modern finance, the key is how to find a filter and how to, how to know what to focus on. And, and so that's sort of a, a key thing that we all have to learn to, do, to live with, I think, in today's modern world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Steve, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for making time to, to speak to us. Well, thanks so much for your time as well. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.